Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. I'm Nicole Sinclair, and thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I'm here with Jim O'Neill today. Really glad to have him. He's former chief economist at Goldman Sachs, and he's here with me to discuss globalization. Jim, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I want to start first with the term brick. As many of our listeners will know, uh, you're famous for coining the term BRIC in 2001, back when you were at Goldman Sachs. BRIC, of course, is the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And it's really a framework you created to highlight the rise of these regions in the global mm -hmm. system. Uh, this designation seems to have taken some new importance today, particularly with Russia and China dominating news. I want to start with what made you come up with this term in the first place? It's sort of stamped on my forehead. And when I finally uh, pass away, it will be there. People will be able to look at me with Mr. <laughs> Brick on my head. Um, you know, it's quite simple on one level, and although a bit peculiar. It, it, it was coincidentally around the time of 9-11, I had just become the sole uh, head of economic research at GS. The previous uh, six years, I'd been the, the, the joint head with a, another uh, very distinguished person, as is typical of, of what Goldman has done historically, having joint heads. But I became sole head. And I, so I was trying to think, how am I going to try and brand my leadership? And more importantly, how was I going to try and help the firm think about how the world is changing? Because Goldman had very ambitious uh, global plans. And then uh, the dreadful incident of 9-11 happened. And strangely, this is the strange part, when I thought about what the implied underlying message may be uh, beyond the horror uh, of that brutal attack, it, it, it kind of strangely in my head came to that may, maybe this means that in order for globalization to thrive going forward, it had to be more than just uh, what it appeared to be in the previous 20 years, the never-ending rise of the Americanization of the world as such. Uh, and rightly or wrongly, that's what led me to thinking of the notion of trying to think of a globalized world in which very different sorts of countries would have a seat at the table. Uh, and that was the beginning of the, the idea of the BRIC countries. And, I, of course, I never had the slightest idea it would become as well known as it, as it did. And still, it's nearly 16 years later. Yes, indeed, it is well known. Brazil, Russia, India, and China, of course, huge economies, developing economies that we continue to talk about so much, especially today. If globalization, though, doesn't equal Americanization today, something that you saw um, over a decade ago, is that a negative thing for America? Um, not really. I, th I think I think on one level, in terms of ego, possibly because obviously, and I think sometimes many of us as individuals probably feel this when when you think you're king of the hill or queen queen bee, you know, mm -hmm. and you can just sort of sit on top of everybody else you know, maybe incorrectly, actually. It, it often typically makes people feel good. Mm -hmm. um, but 
particularly given the underlying uh, challenges that the U.S. has faced and continues to face, and very topical in this regard, in terms of uh, the U.S. getting rid of its uh, persistent trade deficit, it would almost definitely be good if all the BRIC countries get to the potential that my concept made so uh, exciting for so many people. Because if we have a world by the mid-30s, 2030s, where the combined GDP of the BRIC countries is bigger than the G7, I am pretty sure that that is going to be really good for many multinational American companies. Yeah, that will be interesting to watch. In the G20 meeting recently, Trump said in a speech, President Trump in the U.S., of course, quote, the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have enough confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? That was President Trump speaking in Poland. Uh, what is your response to that? Is globalization inevitable? He seems to based on this and much of his other rhetoric, want to reinforce borders and protect borders? So, to be honest, I, I see that kind of speech as in a similar light to many others that he and seemingly those with close influence over him have, have given in the past 12 to 18 months. And I, I think it's very old-fashioned and, and a bit out of date. Um, I think, as I might have mentioned to you before, but I've certainly said before, but it's very important in this regard. One of America's most iconic, modern, brilliant successes, um, Google, uh, through their uh, iPhone, uh, or sorry, Apple, should I say, not Google, yeah. they they, uh, they sell uh, more products into China than they do in the United States. Right. Uh, and have done for the past two or three years. And so to think of the world as the West versus the rest is, is just sort of a bit, uh, you know, old-fashioned. doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and or in addition to that, you know, you have Japan that has already been a wealthier country than the United States, but even though it's not bigger, it's wealthier in terms of GDP per head at least 30 years, and that's not a conventional Western country. So I don't, I don't really understand what such what the premise of such comments are. It seems very old-fashioned and kind of redundant. Right. And, I mean, beyond understanding what the premise is, uh, Larry Summers, former uh, chief economist to uh, mm -hmm. President Obama, was extremely critical of this, but more so really worried about what this means for the future of the U.S. economy. He said that that sort of rhetoric was the, confirma quote, confirmation of the breakdown of international order that many have feared since Donald Trump's election. So as you say, this sort of commentary is outdated. What does that yeah. mean for our country going forward, given that it seems globalization is happening? So far from me, for somebody as 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 uh, as low down in in incredibility <laughs> as the great Larry Summers to disagree with him, I think Larry's Larry's comment there also shows some of this sort of slightly outdated way of thinking. I mean, just because the U.S. is not dominating 
the G20 agenda in the way it might have once done, either by choice, in this case, directly through choice, I don't think it necessarily means that the U.S. is going to be worse off as a result of it. Uh, it just means the rules of engagement are different. But for somebody like me, going back to what we discussed with the BRIC countries, I, I've kind of thought that way for 15, 16 years anyhow. So mm. maybe the sort of thing that's been going on with the likes of Larry are starting to sort of get that a bit. But I don't think it's necessarily negative for the U.S. Um, it certainly means. Uh, that it's forcing other countries to take a bigger leadership uh, role in in the world and that the U.S. probably can't be as influential now, even if it wanted to be, given what, what Trump has chosen as his style. But I'm not sure it's necessarily negative. I mean, in a number of areas, the G20, I, I, I think, again, as we discussed ahead of this, in a number of areas, and some very important to me, the G20 actually managed to deliver quite powerful statements. Uh, i give you one example in particular, uh, so-called antimicrobial resistance, which abbreviates to AMR, which is uh, a, a huge potential threat to uh, global society and the economy uh, unless we do something about finding new antibiotics and stopping the spread of antibiotic resistance. The G20 put out a really powerful statement about that. Uh, more than I would have expected, and I'm very pleased about that. And that's happened despite uh, the, the U.S. not taking a leadership position on it. Um, and there's, there's probably many other examples I could cite as well. Yeah, so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure Larry's entirely right. It seems also in climate change, China of all countries has stepped up to the plate <laughs> there. So a lot of counterintuitive moves um, at the you know, just as the U.S. is yeah. taking a back seat a little. One, yeah. one devil's ad advocate uh, question, though, um, in terms of the impact to the U.S., though, we do see other countries, as you noted, moving forward. Um, and one area where they're moving forward is in trade. We heard in the beginning yeah. of July that the EU and Japan announced a broad agreement that would lower barriers on goods traded between them. We know that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the U.S. pulled out of, um, may be going forward without the U.S. What yeah. sort of impact do those sorts of agreements that leave the U.S. out have on our future growth? So I do, I do think you raise a good point there. Um, that the, this is one of the areas where the U.S. could lose out and therefore harm itself unless it develops a more... Uh, imaginative or modern way of thinking. Let me throw in another example to highlight uh, the scale of the change going on in trade. At the end of 2016, Germany, which is a member of the EU, importantly, uh, its number one trade partner in the world is now China. If mm. you combine what Germany imports and what Germany exports, China has overtaken each of the U.S. and France, which is its really important geographic neighbor, to be its number one trade partner. And that's partly because Germany thinks really carefully and is very good at trade. Uh, and if the U.S. chooses deliberately to be not part of some of these big global trade deals, then it's not entirely clear to me why that is going to uh, at all help the United States. And it definitely potentially harms them. Um, I, I was in uh, Asia recently, as I often am, and 
uh, a, a, a unnamed ex-senior Asian finance official said to me that specifically in this regard that he always believed that the the, the uh, Asian trade deal or the TPP uh, would be uh, likely to be really beneficial for Asian trade. And the big attraction for most Asian countries was the trade, growing trade with themselves, not not being in a deal with the U.S. And he couldn't understand why the U.S. didn't want to be part of it, but he didn't think it was that big a deal for, for the trade deal if the U.S. won. Interesting. So, and, and going back to what I said earlier, that, you know, if, if the U.S. wants to have in the future as the BRIC countries rise, more and more Apple-type successful companies, then obviously it needs to think more constructively about engaging with those countries. The U.S. too often, and Trump epitomizes this, think, think about it in a very simple, simple way of blaming these countries for too stronger U.S. imports and supposedly uh, replacing manufacturing jobs in the States. And it's, again, it's very old-fashioned and, and kind of out of, out of date. Yeah, and when I mean, you mentioned that we need a more imaginative, uh, imaginative way of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, many voted for Trump largely because of that finger pointing externally, the talk of nationalism, populism. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. agree with Trump when it comes to the ill effects of globalization, the temporary displacements, the industry disruption, whether it's mining or beyond. So how do you convince people about the long-term benefits when there are so many disruptions that, frankly, are making so many so angry? So, I mean, Trump's strategy has just been a more aggressive version of, of many repeated temptations like this going back for a good 30 years. Uh, I started out in the world of finance in the early 80s when it was very fashionable to blame Japan for all uh, things going wrong in the United States. And, and for the past 15 years, it's now become China. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's just basically ridiculous. Um, as I said a minute ago, uh, twice, in fact, I've said that U.S. iconic companies like Apple are selling more to Chinese consumers than it sells inside the U.S. And so there's a major U.S. company directly benefiting from globalization. And, 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 of course, it, it has short-term superficial appeal because, you know, everybody inside a national border loves to blame somebody outside of their circle for, for things that are wrong. And so it's, it's always attractive to blame somebody from overseas because it's easy. But it doesn't mean to say it's right, and it's, in this case, almost certainly wrong. What, what I think Trump and his team must start to do is actually something which I've also become highly involved in here in the UK, where we have something called the so-called Northern Powerhouse, which is uh, a more constructive way of trying to uh, help recovery of previous powerhouse parts of the British industrial economy, like great cities like Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, and so on, where we try to have specific policies aimed at helping their economies. And, and not at all thinking about trying to blame uh, other countries around the world for supposed damage they've done to these parts of, of the UK. And at some point, that is what is going to have to be done 
for the future of people, whether it be in challenging parts of, let's say, Virginia or Ohio or much of the Midwest and so on, where a lot of the rhetoric of Trump's policies seems to find such superficial favor. I want to go back to what you were saying about the U.S. not necessarily being the superpower it has been or once was. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know you were mentioning um, Britain. Of course, you're from Britain. Uh, We can Mm -hmm. all tell by that accent. But of course, you know, after fighting both world wars, the the emergence of the U.S. and the Soviet Union as well, um, of course, you know, the British Empire after really being uh, considered a superpower for some time uh, wasn't. You know, from readings that I've done, it seems that it was kind of the, the Suez crisis of 1956 that actually was uh, seen as the beginning of the end of Britain as a superpower. So when we're talking about what this could mean for the U.S., is, is drawing a parallel to the British Empire appropriate? Are there, of course, that was a different time. Are there ways that we should be thinking about the way that the U.S. can grow when China, India, Brazil, Russia become even more important as their populations and productivity continue to grow? Well, I think it's, uh, Nicole, a a very interesting potential parallel. Uh, And and the most important thing I would say is that, and this is really crucial for American policy thinkers, influencers to take on board, Uh, Even though Britain uh, no longer has anything like the global presence that it did uh, before the Suez crisis, is a country that has seen its wealth uh, probably treble since then. And taking it back to uh, uh, correctly perceived disadvantaged working class people in the U.S., what they are ultimately almost definitely interested in is their own wealth, not not how big America is, or they shouldn't be. It might, it might be, again, it, I said at the start, it might be good for the ego, but you know the fact that the U.S. is bigger than other countries or not shouldn't be what really matters. It's what is the typical wealth of an American uh, family uh, today and what it's likely to be in the future. Uh, and I would be happily prepared to argue with virtually anybody for hours on end that uh, the U.S. is much more likely to be wealthier for more American people if China and India and others become very big economies in the future, irrelevant of whether they're bigger of the U.S. or not. I mean, they probably will become bigger than the U.S. in the next 30 years. But I don't think that is going to harm at all the wealth of, a, of, a, of your average American is almost definitely going to improve it, as, as the example you've raised is definitely the case for the United Kingdom uh, person. I want to finish with Russia, though, which truly has been dominating headlines <laughs> of late. Um, you talk about the growth of China and India being additive to overall growth and benefiting the U.S., but with yeah. Russia... Um, as an adversary, if you want to put it that, there are many ways that you could um, describe the relationship, but we'll just say adversary. What are the implications of the rise of Russia and this heated conflict between Putin and the U.S.? So I'll I'll, I'll begin by making a self-inflicted 
joke on my acronym that <laughs> there are some people that have said over the past 15 years that maybe I should have called it BIC yeah. uh, to ex- exclude the R for Russia. Um, partly for the reasons you imply with your question, but it is also the case that uh, Russia won't have any chance of becoming as big as the other three uh, BRIC countries unless uh, it can do something about three areas. Firstly, it's dreadful demographics. Secondly, it's uh, excessive dependency on oil and gas. And thirdly, it's weak productivity. Uh, And I often think, if you look from 40,000 feet, that Maybe one of the reasons why uh, Putin's second time round has been so adversarial is is it plays well to the popular short-term view of Russian people about Russia's stance in the world and, crucially, uh, takes attention away from the fact that the Russian economy has been weak for now about three or four years. Uh, And I think it's a very delicate uh, balancing act Because at the end of the day, just like uh, Trump or any other leader in in the U.S. or anywhere, that if the Russian economy doesn't start to improve in coming years, then Putin is going to probably run into a serious problem and Russia will have to go through some kind of change and a a new era, which could involve a very different approach. Uh, You have to remember, again, with the BRIC, uh, acronym of nearly 16 years. In 2001, not only was Russia a member of the G20, it was a member of the G8. And I think I'm right in saying it was the US that was eager to, to in those days, because they believed Russia was democratizing so much, to, to bring Russia even closer. Hmm. Uh, and I think uh, that is inevitable at some stage in the future, unless Putin starts himself to find some new ways of generating domestic, lasting economic growth that's not dependent on rising oil and gas prices, which, of course, if that were the case, would be good for everybody else, including for the U.S. So I I don't personally believe there is any longevity to this this very confrontational uh, style that Putin has adopted that you so nicely described in your question. Surely watching China, India, Brazil, and even Russia will continue to be a crucial part of globalization in the coming years and how it all unfolds. So thanks, Jim O'Neill, former chief economist of Goldman Sachs. Uh, We appreciate your being here, and we're glad that the term BRIC has followed you around for many years. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Yahoo Finance podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nicole Sinclair. Thanks so much.